Good morning. Well, ain't that a strange thing? We're saying goodbye to one Miss Hervey and looking at another one. <laughs> and, and it's true. I didn't know I was preaching, and I didn't know that there would be a, a staff involved. Uh, and I didn't have time to go back and remove everything that was uh, offensive. Yeah. It, it was just too many things. I didn't, I didn't know exactly how to go about it. And, you know, and then it, it dawned on me that um, in the words of uh, that ethicist Popeye, I am what I am, and that's all what I am. So I couldn't really do anything more than be who I am, and maybe that's enough. I, um, I remember reading of a, a, of, a, of a young man who was interviewing for a youth pastor position, and he went to the church with his wife, and they, you know, they met the kids, they met the parents, they met the elders, they met the committees, they met everybody, and then he was preaching on the Sunday morning, and they wanted to introduce his wife. So they asked her to come up to the platform, and she was great with child, great with child. And the young man walked down off the platform and helped her up. Oh, he won the vote right then. It didn't really matter what he preached because he, he, he won the vote. So, Lois, please, help me out, won't you? <laughs> you know, I can almost hear through the stream, that ship has sailed, pal. <laughs> it isn't going to happen. But anyway, thanks for paying attention this morning. I, I'm also reminded I have never preached on a family fifth Sunday. Now, the last Family Fifth Sunday, the former pastor, Messervy, preached, and he reminded everybody that he was cognizant of the fact that it was a Family Fifth Sunday and there were children there, and he would take that in mind as he delved into the motifs of Scripture. Uh, I decided that I would be briefer than normal. I failed. Because there was so much in the one parable I wanted to address that I decided to do two in, instead. Because they're tied together with a, with a question. But I did make a, an outline for, uh, for the youngsters, and it only has five points in it. My problem is when I ha try to fill in the blanks, I often forget. So if you're helping someone, that would be good. And if you also get lost in my verbiage, you can grab one of those from the kids' zone and get the, get the outline. But I'm going to be looking at Luke chapter 12 this morning. In, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke, the section that I'm in, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is training the 12 and he's challenging the crowds and he's been going over the priorities of the kingdom of God. And in this these uh, parables that I'm going to look at this morning, he's specifically looking at the, the, the times of the ages between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And in it, he, he's going to use the image of a household with a, a master and servants and uh, workers uh, think Downton Abbey, if you, if you will, where you have, you know, the, the royalty living and then the, a whole house full of servants. And, and may, maybe you've seen it where the, the, uh, the lords are away and then they come back and, and all the, the butler and the footmen and all the people are lined up outside as the, as the, um, 
as the, the Lord comes back so they can welcome him, and him in appropriately and take his luggage in. Well, that's kind of what these parables are about. It reminded me of the opposite. When I was in high school, my, um, my group and I were not exactly stellar citizens. And um, one of the guys said, hey, my parents are out of town. Would you like to come over and party? And we said, yes. And so there's a whole bunch of people. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing. And all of a sudden, there's a man in the kitchen, and he's angry. Turns out, the father came home unannounced. And he said, I can remember this to this day. You are not welcome here. And we all fled. Well, that's kind of the parables that I'm looking at. If, if you turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 12, let's stand together as we read the Word of God. And I'm going to read the two parables. But be looking for what surprises you in the parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting uh, that is, they're awake for his return, will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and dress for service, roll up his sleeves, we would say, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this. If a homeowner had known exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So Peter asked, Lord, is that il illustration or is that parable just for us or for everyone? And the Lord said, a faithful, sensible servant is one who to whom the master can give responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there'll be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. You may be seated. If you're following in the outline, there are five words you need to know. The servants wait, the servants call, the servants warning, the servants reward, 
and the servant's heart. When I get to heart, you know I'm halfway through. And we'll be finished sometime this, this afternoon. The servants wait. So in both of these cases, the household is running, the servant is away, and they don't know when he'll be coming back. But in the meantime, they have a call. They have a command. The servant's call is to be faithful to what the Lord has told them when he left. So in the one case, uh, you don't know, he's away at a wedding. You don't know what time he'll be back. Could be all night. Be ready to open the door when he comes and serve him. That's their call then is to be ready, to be dressed for service, he says. Or, you know, literally, it's gird your loins. It's tying up the eastern road so that you can work. We say roll up your sleeves or tie your shoes and be ready to work. The lights are on. People are home. They're waiting for him. Not like me and my friends. And the second group, uh, he's away for a long time, traveling somewhere, doing business or whatever he's doing. And one, one uh, servant is left in charge of the others. He's managing them. Literally, he's a steward. And he's caring for them, organizing the household, doing what needs to be done, feeding them. And, uh, and when he comes back then, uh, he, he'll evaluate the, the work that's being done. And that brings us to point number three, the servant's warning. Because if you'll notice, in both cases he comes unexpectedly. That they have to be ready all the time. He said, I'm going to come back. But he did not say when. And there's a long delay. <laughs> long enough for you to begin to slouch and be who you really are. And that's the warning, that he will come and see who we really are. Now, one of the things about interpreting the parables is looking for that which is unexpected, that there's often a twist that dramatizes the point that Jesus is trying to make. And in this one, if you'll notice, so you have an ordinary household with ordinary servants, ordinary responsibilities, an ordinary trip. Everything is ordinary. But when he comes back, he says he will severely punish him. He will cut the servant in pieces and banish him to the unbelievers. So this, all of a sudden, we're out of the realm of the ordinary. And Jesus is forcing us to look at the final judgment of God. And so here you have a, a case where he doesn't just fire a bad worker, but cut in pieces, or you know, some translate it severely beats. But Matthew's gospel has the same parable. And in it he says, you'll be banished with the hypocrites, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That the, the, the point of this is that the challenge that he's giving is urgent and it is serious. And we're looking at not just ordinary life to get through happy or unhappy, uh, uh, prosperous or unprosperous, but we're looking at a time when we will stand before the God of gods and be judged. So the Apostle Paul can say, for we all will stand 
before the judgment seat of Christ to receive for what we've done in, in the body. So here, the, the, the wicked servant uh, takes advantage of his resources, beats the other servants, takes advantage of them, and the master is understandably angry when he comes. Now this, you can't read this without some fear or nervousness. And some of us, we can't read it without taking offense. The idea of a, of a final judgment. And we don't have time to go through everything to defend this, but in this parable alone, we can see that facing the judgment of God is certain. He will come back. And if he doesn't come back before we die, we will die and we will stand before the God of gods. And not only is it certain, but the judgment is severe. He says of this, of this uh, servant, he will be beaten, cut in pieces, and banished to the unbelievers. So the judgment of God is certain, is severe, but it's also just. Did you notice he said, some will receive a light punishment, some a, a, a great punishment, all of them, you don't want the punishment. But the idea here is that the God of justice is a God of justice. It reminds me of Abraham when he was interceding for his nephew Lot. He said, shall not the God of all the earth do justice? Won't he do justice? And the answer is yes. No one will be able to stand before him in that day and say, uh, I wasn't treated fairly. It will be justice. But the main point here is not just that it's certain, that it's severe, that it's just, but that it's sudden. There's no time for this, uh, there's no time for this servant to get his act together. It comes, it's not like your boss is away on vacation and you play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you know he's coming back on Friday, so get, get your job done on Friday so everything looks good. It doesn't work that way. He comes when he's unexpected, just as the father of my friend. All of a sudden, he's there. You're not welcome here. The anger of the owner. There's a, I think it's William Barclay has said that the most dangerous time in a man's life or a woman's is when he learns the word tomorrow. Right? Not today, but tomorrow. We think we have tomorrow. We we knew when we moved down here that one day Aaron would receive a call and go somewhere. We just thought it would be farther out. But it isn't. It's today. Barclay went on to say there was a picturing demons coming to Satan with their method of deceiving people into losing life with God. One of them says, I'll tell them there's no God. And the next one comes and says, well, I'll tell them there's no hell. And the third one comes and says, I'll tell them there's no hurry. 
You have any time. You have as much time as you want to make things right with God. But it's not so. It is today is the day of salvation. Today is the day he calls us. Today, if we hear his voice, we're called not to harden our hearts. I think it was in our, our Daily Bread illustration one day, a traveler is uh, traveling and weary and he comes across this huge estate and tries to find a place to stay and it's completely empty except there's just one caretaker and he welcomes him in to rest. And, but he notices everything is immaculate. The grounds are kept. The weeding is done. Everything is trimmed. It's not like my yard. It's, it's immaculate. And the house is all, everything is polished and shiny and bright. And he says, how often does the owner come? He said, well, I've been working here 12 years and I've seen him three or four times. So you keep it as though he's coming tomorrow? No, sir. No. I keep it as though he's coming today. That's the point of this parable. And we're well to ask then the question that Peter introduced this question, this question to introduce this parable. Because Jesus told the first parable about the servants waiting for the, the, the owner to come home from a feast. And Peter asks in verse 41, Lord, is that parable for us or for everyone? And the answer is, yes. But yes, it's for you, Peter. You are like this faithful servant that is given care and to feed and to provide for the other servants in the household. I, I fear for the church today. I get mail every day from a, uh, from a, a ministry called Ministry Watch. And it tries to help the people of God to be aware of what's going on. So when they give their money, they're giving it to reputable places. And every day, another pastor has fallen to either greed or selfishness or sexual immorality or taking advantage of the flock of God. And this is what he responds with this parable for that very thing. Yes, it's for you disciples that I have called to shepherd my flock. And if you get greedy to take what is theirs and take what is mine, then the judgment of God falls upon it. Whew, I'm so relieved because I thought this was for somebody else. But it's also for everyone else. For at the end of the parable in verse 48, when someone has been given much, much will be required. And when someone has been entrusted with much, more will be required. And so, yeah, I can say to myself, you know, I'm not called to professional ministry, but I have been given much. I might not have the same gifts and talents and personality that my neighbor has, but I have been given much. And I might not have the resources, the finances, or the business acumen that my neighbor has, but I have been given much. 
And this is what God is calling us to, to not use what other people have, but to use what he has given us, and we have been given much. It's as he said to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. I'm reminded of the, I'm not going to turn to it, but in, you can read it on your own in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. The city of Samaria is under siege. And it's under siege so long that the famine is great. It's, the, it's, it's so bad that they're, they're eating babies. Presumably stillborn, but who knows? But that, that's how severe the, the famine is because of the siege. And there are a bunch of lepers sitting in the gate. And eventually it dawns on them, you know what? If we stay here, we're going to die. And if we go into the city, we're going to die. So let's go over to the enemy camp. If they have mercy on us, we'll live. But if not, we'll just die. <laughs> There's nothing to lose here. So they go over to the enemy camp and they find out that the Lord had caused a panic the night before. And the people fled. And they left all their stuff, their horses, their donkeys, their tents, full of provisions, full of, full of money. And the, and the lepers say this, they go into a tent, they eat and they drink their fill. And then they take gold and silver and clothes and they go bury it. And then they go back to get more. And it dawns on them, wait a minute, what we're doing is not right. And the judgment of God will be upon us. This is a day of good news, of glad tidings. We have to go and tell the king. We have to tell the city that God has provided for them. Isn't that the call of the servant of God. And I might not have what the world calls much, but I have much. And the Lord wants to spread that through me into the world. And the flip side of the warning is the servant's reward. So we're, the servant is waiting for the master. He has responsibilities to uh, to care for while he's waiting. He's warned that the, the, the owner will come back at a time that he doesn't know, in an hour he, he can't foresee, and he will receive what he has done in his, in his body. And then three times in this, in, this, uh, in this section talks about receiving a reward. In verse 37, the servants who are ready and waiting or awake when he returns will be rewarded. And in verse 38, uh, he may come in the middle of the night or at dawn, but he will give reward to those who are ready. And in verse 41, if the master returns and finds the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. So three times, you know, one time for judgment, three times for reward. And Really, this is the new living translation. I don't think reward is the greatest translation of this. It's a word that you know from other places in the scripture. It is blessed. Blessed is the servant 
that the Lord finds awake when he comes. Blessed is the servant that is faithful to do what God has called. Faith, blessed is the one who has been faithful to, to minister to the fellow servants. Even this sometimes bothers me. Because didn't Jesus say, you're nothing special. You can't expect anything from the Lord. All you can say is, I am an unworthy servant. I've only done what you commanded. I can't expect any reward because I've only done what I was supposed to do. And truth be told, not even that. And yet here, these servants awake, alert, faithful, obedient, are blessed of God. They did not earn this. That's why I don't like the word reward, as though it is something that I earned and God owes me something. It isn't because he owes me something. It's because he is generous. And that those that are faithful and in union with him receive rich blessing. This is the hope of the scripture. That when we look at life and we see hard times and bad times and troubled times, we look forward to a day when the rejoicing and the celebration of God is open and we're invited to enter in. There is a, in the words of our former associate pastor, there is a motif in Scripture, a theme of an end-time banquet, a celebration feast where the people of God are invited to come in and enjoy his blessings that they eat and are satisfied, not because they earned it, but because he is gracious and generous. He is the one that takes us from being enemies and places us in his household. He's the one that makes us his servants. And if we follow the scripture through, we find out we're more than servants. We're sons and daughters of the, of the king. And he's the one that opens our ears that so we can hear his command to be ready, to be faithful. And he's the one through the power of his spirit that makes us able to do what he has called. And even though it is all of grace, it is all of generosity, it is all of what he gives to me that I haven't earned and I haven't accomplished and I don't deserve, he still rewards and blesses as though I did it all myself. That's the goodness of God. But the, the most shocking thing, as I said before, if you look at the parables and you look for the thing that's surprising, the most shocking thing is in 1237. Did you notice this as we read? That the servants who are ready and waiting, that is, they're awake for his return will be blessed. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them. Gird himself as a servant and serve them as they sit and eat. What's wrong with this picture? These servants are just doing what he told them. And he's so pleased that he girds himself as a servant, sits them down, and serves them. 
that's, that's the twist. And my response is, no, 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 this can't be. This does not compute. No. He's the one that deserves the service. He's the one that we should uh, care for and serve. Reminds me, you remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet on the night of his betrayal. What did Peter say? No, never. You'll never wash my feet. He said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. But the strange thing is, for me, or for some people, I should say, for some people, <laughs> the strange thing is that I'm used to thinking of Jesus as the one who came. Remember, he said, I did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That I, I'm well aware of the suffering servant who came to provide salvation for sinful people. To shed his blood that we might be adopted into his family. But I have this picture of when he comes back that he's not that way, right? He comes back as, as a conquering king. And I think there's a tendency to think that the first time he came, he played a role of a servant. But when he comes back, he'll come back as the true Jesus. This text tells me something far different. That when he came to serve, he didn't come to play a role. He came to serve because he's a servant. And he has a servant's heart. And it doesn't change. It didn't change in the past. It's not changing in the present. And it will not change in the future. That when he came the first time, he came as king. He established a kingdom. Uh, Zion, your king, is coming to you, humble, riding a donkey. This is the one that commands wind and waves, and they obey him. This is the one that provides miraculous food. This is the one that calls the dead out of their graves. He is the all-powerful one, the king of kings, lord of lords, and he is a servant that comes. Uh, Graham Kendrick has a song, this is our God, the servant king. And this is, this is the heart of Jesus. He is getting, giving us a glimpse of who he really is. And if we don't see this, and we see it as some kind of play acting, then what are we calling him? In fact, there's a Greek word that's used for play acting, taking a role, pretending. It's the word hypocrite. And the very, very last thing that we ever want to do 
is accuse our Lord of being the hypocrite. No, he has the servant heart. This is why he serves, because he has the servant's heart. The, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 138 said, Great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He knows the haughty from afar. That God the Father regards God the Son as the servant of the Father. In Isaiah chapter 57, I dwell, he says, in a high and lofty place, but also with him who is of a broken and lowly spirit. Isaiah 42, behold my spirit, my servant, uh, that my, in whom my soul delights, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. That this is the heart of the Lord, the heart of a servant. And when he returns, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And he will also be the servant. He will never, ever change. Uh, there's a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And in it, he points out that in the 89 chapters that we have in the four Gospels that record the words and the activity of Jesus, we can extrapolate a lot about what his heart is like from what he taught, what he did. But there is only one place in those 89 chapters that he specifically says, this is what my heart is like. And what Jesus said was, come to me, all you that are laden, weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's the heart of Jesus. It is the heart of God the Son from all eternity and on, on earth and will be throughout all eternity. That this is, this is the heart of Jesus. And why this is important to me is because when I go back to the servant's call that we saw. How can I be ready? How can I be faithful? How can I be generous with the much that I have received? Well, it can only happen if Jesus changes my heart. I can't, how many times have I heard the word to do something and I said, I'm going to do it. And then time went on, the Lord didn't come back, <laughs> and I went back to my old ways. He has to come and enter me and change me into what he wants me to be. This crystallized for me. I reread the book, Same Kind of Different as Me. It's almost hard to say. Same kind of different in me. Uh, 
is a, is a book by the most unlikely pair of authors. One of them couldn't even read and write. And it's an unlikely friendship between Ron Hall, who is a wealthy white art dealer, wealthy enough to buy $200 bottles of oil, olive oil for, for his cooking. And this friend is a homeless black man that never went to school a day in his life. Had a, had a scam where he would, if he got an extra buck, he would buy a, a hamburger from McDonald's. And then he would sneak it into a garbage can. And then when he saw somebody coming, scrounge in there and eat it. And the, typically the person would say, oh, that's terrible, and give him 20 bucks. Or so he would be making money on this scam. Completely unlikely that they would be friends, but through a, a miracle of the providence of God, they were. Well, anyway, uh, so the poor man, Denver, he's down in the hood at the, uh, at the mission, and he sees a car pull up, and the passenger door opens, and this old man is thrown out of the car, and then his suitcase is thrown out after him. And, you know, we learn later on that he was a cantankerous drunk. And not just an ordinary drunk, a mean drunk. And he's thrown out in the, down in the seedy part of town. And Denver sees this and he says to himself, he's not gonna survive down here. If he doesn't have a friend to show him around, he won't survive. And so he goes up to Mr. Ballantyne and he says, let me show you into the mission. To which Mr. Ballantyne says, get the blank away from me, you N-word that we don't use. But that didn't turn Denver off. He said, this man needs a friend and I will be his friend. And he watched out for him and he would get meals and take to them all the time Never a thank you other than cursing. And finally, Mr. Ballantyne ended up in a nursing home. And uh, it was government run and it was not a place you want to be. And Denver would go and visit him. And one time, Ron, the rich fellow, went with him. And Ron goes in the room and he turns right around and goes outside before he could throw up. But Denver stays and he cleans curdled milk, diarrhea, urine, vomit. And he just cares for this man who never said one good thing to him ever. And Ron comes back and says, is there any way I can bless you? <laughs> well, I could, get, I could use some things from the store. And they go to the store and pick up some items. So Mr. Ballantyne asks Denver, why? Why does he want to bless me? Now, he never asked this of Denver because he was just an N-word that we don't use. Why does he want to bless me? And Denver said, well, he's a Christian, and so am I. And Mr. Ballantyne says, well, you know, I dislike Christians as much as N-words that we don't use. But he went to church with him anyway. 
But the thing that, that challenges me is how is it that this man, without any schooling because of the, uh, the sharecropping, it's slavery in everything but word, lived a life of, of, uh, of bigotry and hatred and became an angry, violent man. They nicknamed him Suicide. Not because he was suicidal, but because messing with him was suicidal. How does a man like that serve someone who is so unlovely, unloving, and undeservedly? How is that possible? And Denver tells the story of how everybody ignored me. They walked past me, and they were wise to do it. I was a threat, but they couldn't see that I was behind bars. I was in jail. But Ron's wife would come down to the mission to serve, and she wasn't like the other ones that came to feel good about themselves on holidays. She came because she loved people, and she saw people, and she saw Denver behind his prison walls. And Denver said God had given her a set of keys, and she took one of those keys and she unlocked my jail, and Jesus set me free. That's how you become a servant to the unlovely. That's how you become a servant to people, uh, God's people and all people. It's when Jesus sets us free and changes us to have the same heart that he has. Did Mr. Ballantyne come to faith in Jesus? I don't know but I know he saw what faith in Jesus was like. Did he submit to the love of Jesus who gave his life for him? I don't know. But I know he knew what love was like. Did he find forgiveness of his own sins the way Denver had? I, I don't know. But I know he saw the grace and kindness of God. We've been looking at a theme of influencers. We cannot be influencers unless we have the heart of Jesus. And we cannot have the heart of Jesus unless he comes and gives it to us. This is a time when we really need to hear the voice of God. We need to see people that he sees and we need a heart to reach out to the to the broken and the unlovely jeff if you could help me this jeff's going to help us as we go before the lord but i i beg you i ask you if god is saying anything to you do not put off this till tomorrow today if you hear his voice Harden not your heart, but come to him. Find a place of prayer. Maybe God has someone that he wants to reveal to you. This is your Mr. Ballantyne. This is your Denver Moore. This is the one that I want you to serve. Our God,
let your spirit fall on us. Enter my heart, Lord Jesus. Make me a servant that you might be displayed in the rich glory of your goodness, your humility, your love. This is not possible for me, but there is nothing impossible for you. Thank you.